you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does, let me invite you to find Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13. The story that I'm about to tell you is completely true. You're not going to believe it's true, but you need to know from the start that every single detail of the story I'm about to tell you is true. When I was uh, in eighth grade, I loved playing basketball. The only problem was I was a little four foot nothing runt. So uh, it's not good when you're playing basketball if you're a runt because every time you throw the ball up, the ball comes right back in your face. So eighth grade at my school was the first year you could try out for the school basketball team. And everybody who was cool was on the eighth grade basketball team. So I thought, I'm David Platt, I need to be cool. So I need to be on the eighth grade basketball team. Only problem is, I'm a runt. So I'm thinking how can I impress the coach so he'll put me on the team. And true story, one day I'm sitting up in my room at my house and I was reading in the Bible and I came across Luke chapter one, verse 37, which says, for nothing is impossible with God. And at that moment, it was like the words of scripture leapt off the page and into my heart. And I knew exactly how I could make the eighth grade basketball team. For nothing is impossible with God. If that is true, then I can dunk the basketball. <laughs> it's possible. It says it. And if I can dunk the basketball, coaches gotta put me on the team. I mean, talk about cool. <laughs> Four foot nothing dunking on the eighth grade basketball team. So I left my Bible sitting there on the desk and I went outside where we had a basketball court in our driveway. I grabbed a basketball and I went to the back of the driveway. I got down on my knees, I said, God, I believe with your power I can dunk this basketball. You said in your word nothing is impossible with you. So I stood up and I wanted everything to be perfect. So I counted out how many steps it was gonna take for me. I got to the very back of the driveway. I was gonna do a long running start. Uh, so I counted out how many steps it was gonna take me to get to the goal. And then my plan was, when I was about two feet away, I was gonna close my eyes. Okay, follow with me here. I'm gonna, <laughs> true, true story. I'm gonna take the last two steps with my eyes closed and I'm gonna jump with my eyes closed. That way I can picture like angels lifting me up to the goal. <laughs> and then the next thing I'm gonna feel is the rim. I'm gonna throw the ball to the rim and then my plan is I'm gonna hang there uh, for a little while because I've never been up there before. And so, <laughs> so that was my plan. I had every step counted out, last two steps, eyes closed. I'm just thinking to, I'm gonna jump and there's, Angels lift me up. So I went back, again, back the driveway. Again, got down on my knees. God, you said in your word, nothing is impossible to you. I believe your power. I can dunk this basketball. I mean, people driving by, just a normal day for them. I'm having a revival right there in the driveway. 
So I get up. Now, now before I finish the story, and again, every detail of the story is true. So let me just ask, how many of you, just be honest, how many of you think, like really believe that on that day I dunked the basketball. 10 foot goal, so I'm not like playing tricks like anything. So, so I, how many of you believe I dunked the basketball? Nobody. <laughs> well, like two of you, like raise your hand when you felt sorry for me because nobody. <laughs> I, for nothing is impossible with God. I get up off my knees in prayer. I start running. Every step counted out. I get two feet away. I close my eyes. I take the last two steps with my eyes closed and I jump. Like I could feel something on my right and my left. And the next thing I felt was that basketball pole right in my forehead. (laughs) I want you to imagine walking by my house on that day. (laughs) You see this kid get up off his knees, supposedly in prayer, and just go running and jump headfirst into the basketball goal with the ball. (laughs) Ah. So here's the deal. I found out later, I studied that passage. It actually is referring to the virgin birth, not dunking a basketball. I had... <laughs> so that there is, it's important to study context in Scripture, apparently. Uh, <laughs> so I, I totally missed the point of the passage. But I share that story from the start of this conference because my prayer for this conference, plainly put, is that God would raise up college students, men and women across this room who will take God at His word. So He has said in His word, so, and this is in context, Matthew 24, 14, says this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed as a testimony to all the nations. And then he said four chapters later, therefore go and make disciples of all these nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And he said, I am with you always. I'll be with you. Go and take all these nations, make disciples among all the groups of people, ethnic groups in the world, and I'll be with you every step of the way. And the Bible says in the end, we know where everything is going. All history is headed to the day when Jesus has returned and he is receiving praise from all the nations. And my prayer for this conference is that God would raise up students all across this room who believe that. Who will take God at his word and say, you said it. You said this gospel will go, will advance to the nations. You said you would give the power of your presence to everybody who's making that happen. So I'm going to take you at your word and I'm going to do that.
I'm going to give my life to that. But here's the deal. So that's my prayer for this conference. The reality is, though, there is an adversary at work in this world who is doing and will do everything he can to keep you from taking God at his word. There is an adversary in this world who is doing, will do everything he can to lead you into a nominal, cultural, casual, cultural Christianity that disregards the nations. and doesn't take God at his word. And I know that because he's, he's been at work among the people of God for centuries and he's kept the people of God from taking God at his word. Book of Numbers, there they stood on the brink of the promised land God had he'd promised his people that he would give them fruitful, abundant prosperity in this place that they were seeing with their own eyes now. That's not where they had lived. For generations they'd been in slavery. They'd been oppressed and abused. They'd been over whelmed and oppressed by the Egyptian dynasty that ruled them. But God had delivered them miraculously. God turned an entire river into blood. He brought frogs from everywhere, then gnats, then flies. God struck down Egyptian livestock. He sent boils on the skin of their captors, followed by harrowing hail from heaven. Then a swarm of locusts followed by three days of total darkness. In the end, the Egyptians suffered the loss of their firstborn sons. And before you knew it, the Egyptians were handing the Israelites goods and gold and sending them on their way. It didn't take long for the Egyptians to wish they hadn't done that. So they started pursuing the Israelites all the way to the edge of their Red Sea where they thought they had them trapped until God splits the sea in half. And he tells his people, walk through it. And they do. And they get to the other side and they look in their rearview mirrors and the waters come crashing down over their enemies. In the days to come, God guides them with a pillar of cloud by day, fire by night. When they got thirsty, he gave them water from rocks. When they were hungry, he sent bread from the sky. He gave them his word. He showed them his grace. And every step of the way, he promised them the same thing he promised their forefathers. I'm leading you to a great land and it's all going to be yours. And finally, one day they get there, they arrive, they can see it. So they decide to send a group of spies to go in and check it out. And the spies come back with a report. 
This land is glorious, they said. Pick up with me in Romans, Numbers chapter 13, verse 25. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron, to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, we came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. You can only imagine them eating it and enjoying it. And then everything changes, verse 28. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. So God had called them to take this land. And yet here, the majority of the spies report, we can't take this land. It's not safe. It's not secure. We can't do it. We won't do it. And so the people respond in chapter 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt? Or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? They said, one another, said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Oh, what just happened? Like, see the anatomy of disbelief here in at least four different ways. So one, they totally disregarded the goodness of God. They disregarded the goodness of God. Their first words, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. What? In an instant, they had completely forgotten the glories of God's grace toward them. He had delivered them miraculously from slavery. He'd split a sea in half. They knew where to go because God led them with a cloud and a fire. He gave them water from rocks, bread from the sky every single day without fail. And he brought them to the land, this exceedingly good land, and they immediately say, God's not good to us. He should have left us to die. 
They disregarded the goodness of God. Second, they doubted the greatness of God. Verse three, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Don't miss it, the line of thought here. The Lord, Yahweh, has brought us to this land to be killed. That's why he brought us here. It's just, if they've forgotten, God's power, God's promises. So we can't do this. Notice what they're doing here. They're magnifying potential problems You you look at the spies' report in chapter 13, verse 32 and 33. Nephilim, they're talking about, a race of giants, large people. The reality is, history tells us they were likely small in number. But the way they're talking here, it sounds like everybody in the promised land is Goliath himself. It's not true. But they had convinced themselves that it was, and the more they thought about those people, the bigger they got. That ever happened to you? Do you ever come face to face with an obstacle or some barrier you face in your life, and the more you think about it, the bigger and bigger and bigger it gets? The point where it just drives you to worry and fear, and you completely lose perspective. They magnified potential problems. And they minimized powerful promises. Look back at chapter 13, verse one, the very beginning of chapter 13. When God spoke to Moses, listen to what he said. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. I'm giving you this land. God said it. So it's really not taking God's word. They didn't believe it. Now, now, don't miss this. You've got to see this. Look over at chapter 13, verse 22. When it's, it's talking about, so verse 21 says, they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zen to Rehob near Lebo Hamath. Then in verse 22 says, they went up into the Negev and came to Hebron. Ahiman, Shashai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. So they went up and came to Hebron, where they saw these descendants of Anak, the people who would intimidate them. This is where we gotta realize the significance of where they're standing in Hebron. So hold your place here in Numbers chapter 13 and go back to Genesis chapter 13. So the first book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 13, you've gotta see this. In Genesis chapter 13, with Abraham, the father of the people of Israel, God told Abraham, he said, I'm gonna give you a land to settle in. I'm gonna make it yours. It's gonna belong to your descendants. So the question is, where was that land that God was promising to Abraham and his descendants? Look at Genesis chapter 13, verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, 
Walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Listen to verse 18. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at where? Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Walk around here at Hebron, this length, this breadth of the land. It belongs to you. You'll read on in Genesis, and you'll never guess where Abraham and Sarah, his wife, are buried. Hebron. Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob slash Israel, and Leah buried at Hebron. Then turn over to Genesis chapter 15. Look at Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. The Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Exactly what happened in Egypt. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Exactly what happened in Egypt. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. They're going to come back. This is where God said to Abram, this is your land. I'm going to bring you and your descendants here. So now it's here. It's in the land of promise where the patriarchs to whom that promise was given are buried there. In this place, the people of God come back. They see it. They say, we can't take this. You think you think knowing that, they'd have gotten to Hebron, they'd have fallen on their faces in awe and said, God is faithful. He's brought us back. Instead, they're so preoccupied with the sandal sizes of a few big guys in Hebron that they conclude, we can't do this. And minimizing God's promises magnifying their problems, ultimately doubting the greatness of their God. They disregarded God's goodness, they doubted God's greatness, and as a result, they disobeyed God's word. Third thing here, they disobeyed the word of God. Back in Numbers chapter 14, we read it, verse 4, they said to one another, let us choose a leader and let's go back to Egypt. They, They desire disobedience. They desire to turn around and totally leave behind what God has promised to them. And as a result of that decision, this is the fourth thing, they completely disqualified themselves from the blessing of God. They disregarded the goodness of God. They doubted the greatness of God. They disobeyed the word of God. And as a result, they disqualified themselves from the blessing of God. That's the whole point of the story. Unbelief always robs the people of God from the blessing of God. Those 10 spies who said, we can't take the land, died almost immediately. And every single person among God's people, except for Caleb and Joshua, 
was sentenced to die in the wilderness. Just look, and these are some of the most humbling words. Numbers chapter 14, verse 35. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who were gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. Everybody's dying. And yet they, they still don't get it. They try to fight the people in the land after God has said this. And they are defeated soundly. <laughs> Mark this down. Ladies and gentlemen, if God is for you, no one can stand against you. If God is against you, you have no hope. But there were two men who were different. Chapter 14, verse 5. Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes, and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. So, see the contrast. These two men believed the goodness of God. It's a good land, they said. And you know why it's good? Because God's made it good for us. They knew God had been gracious to them. They knew that's why God had brought them to this point, to to take this good land. They believed the goodness of God. They trusted the greatness of God. Verse eight, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. God will give it to us. That's the point. Yeah, there's some big people. And notice what Caleb and Joshua are saying. They're not saying, piece of cake, guys, we can do this. They're saying, yes, yes, they're bigger than us. We can't do this alone, but God is with us and he is bigger. He's powerful. And he, he'll do what he's chosen to do on behalf of his people throughout all history. He puts his people in positions, in places where they can't do what he's calling them to do on their own, but he's faithful and he displays his glory and his power by providing for them. They trusted the greatness of God. You see where others saw problem, obstacle? Caleb Joshua saw opportunity, possibility. Were there obstacles? Without question there were. But in Caleb and Joshua's eyes, those obstacles were simply opportunities for God to show his greatness. You gotta see this. Turn over real quick, one other place to turn. So uh, hold your place here in Numbers, but go over to Joshua chapter 15. So, past Deuteronomy, then you'll come to Joshua, Joshua chapter 15. So once they, so the rest of the story plays out and generation dies off and new generation takes the promised land along with Caleb and Joshua. They make it to the promised land. Caleb is allotted his portion and check this out. 
Uh, Joshua chapter 15, verse 13, 13. According to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, he gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the people of Judah. Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. <laughs> Arba was the father of Anak, those guys they were afraid of. And Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai, the descendants of Anak. Ha! Caleb took them down. Obstacle? No. Opportunity for God to show his greatness over descendants of Anak. Who were they in view of God? Oh. Don't, don't miss it. While others were worried about man's power, they were confident in God's presence. Back in, in Numbers, so you turn back there in verse 9, it said, only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. The Lord Yahweh is with us. Do not fear them. You can't stop the people of God with the presence of God, period. And so Caleb and Joshua obeyed the word of God. They stand up and say this. It almost cost them their lives. All the congregation said to stone them with stones but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. Huh. They obeyed the word of God and the glory of God rose up on their behalf. And in their obedience, instead of being disqualified from the blessing of God, they would experience the blessing of God. They would go into this land. Joshua from the tribe of Ephraim would become the dominant tribe in the north of Canaan. And Caleb from the tribe of Judah would become the dominant tribe in the south. So why do we have this story? It's interesting when you get to 1 Corinthians, Paul specifically tells us that these stories were given to us for a reason. They were given to us as a warning. Because this is not just a story about some Israelites centuries ago. This is a story about students, about men and women in this room right now. Now, I'm not saying in any way that our situation today is exactly the same as what happened here in Numbers, but I do know this. You and I have been put in a world right now. Just look out over the precipice and see. About 11,000 different people groups out there different ethnicities. Not Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Jebusites, but Berbers in Morocco, Baloch in Pakistan, Somalis in the Horn of Africa, 
11,000 of them. And Jesus has said, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to every single one of them, to all the nations. And he said to us, that's, that's promise, it will happen. And one day, every one of these people groups, Somalis from the Horn, Baloch in Pakistan, Berbers from Morocco, and 11,000 other people groups are gonna be gathered around his throne, singing his praise for his salvation. So that's, that's gonna happen. Promise from God, from the very beginning. We could go back to God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and see the same thing. So he's given us promise and he's given us command. He's given you and I in our day command. Make disciples of every single one of them, of all the nations. Get the gospel to every single one of these people groups. So that's where we stand. This is the picture in front of us, 11,000 people groups, and over 6,000 of those people groups still haven't been reached with the gospel. 6,000 of them. Praying for the Berbers this morning. Hardly any Christians. I was in the middle of northern Africa just a couple of months ago, standing on a mountain, just looking all around me, 360 degrees, just picture this mountain with villages everywhere. And to our knowledge, in that entire view, what you look in this particular area, this particular people group, about 3.5 million people, there's about a hundred followers of Jesus. Most everybody within your sight has not yet been reached with the gospel. And Jesus has said, go. Proclaim the gospel to them and I am promising you the fullness of my presence to make that promise a reality. I'm opening up the storehouse of heaven and saying, I'll give you everything you need to make that promise fulfilled. And so, as we stand at our Kadesh Barnea, I ask us today, are we are you and I, are we going to turn from God and trust in ourselves, or are we gonna to turn to God and trust in Christ? I, I ask that question really on multiple levels. I, I'm not gonna even assume that everyone in this room has turned from God and trusted in Christ for your salvation, and I pray that if you have never made that decision in your life, that you would hear loud and clear in what we sing and what we celebrate this weekend, that God loves you so much that he sent his son to pay the price for all your sin and rebellion against him. Jesus has died on a cross for your sins. He's risen from the dead in victory over sin. 
And he has said to anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in him, you will be forgiven of all your sin and reconciled to God forever. Oh, I urge you to turn to God and trust in Christ. And then for all who have, for all who have, who know God in Christ, I challenge you, based on God's word, what we're seeing here in his word, to say to him, I'll go wherever you want me to go. Knowing what that whatever means, like go conference, I'll go wherever. That could mean Somalia and Al-Shabaab. Could mean West Africa and Boko Haram. Could mean the Middle East, Iraq, ISIS, Syria. I'll go wherever. You might think, I don't know if I'm at a point where I can, I can say that, like wherever. This is where I want to encourage you. Don't forget who you're talking to when you say, I'll go wherever. This is the God who loves you so much and who knows so much better than you do what is best for your life. If you can trust him to save you from hell for eternity, certainly you can trust him to lead you while you're on this earth. And not just to lead you, but to satisfy you every step of the way. So I ask us, are we going to turn from God and trust in ourselves? Say, here's the conditions I have on obedience to you. I'll go here or there, but not here or there. No, no. Let's turn to God and trust in Christ. I ask us. Are we going to sit back in fear of the world or are we going to step forward with faith in his word? God never promised taking the land of Canaan wouldn't be costly, it wouldn't be dangerous. That's not the point of the story. The promise is, I'll give it to you. I'll bless you with it. So believe me. I think about where we are today, the picture in front of us, unreached peoples are unreached for a reason. They're hard to reach, they're difficult to reach, they're dangerous to reach. They're unreached for a reason. All the easy ones are taken. To realize, to take God at his word means to say, I'll go wherever knowing there's cost ahead. But knowing that he's He's powerful and he's good. And he'll use even the cost for the accomplishment of his purpose. I, I uh, heard a story this week. Some of our personnel with IMB and a part of Southeast Asia where uh, they have seen just some wonderful gospel fruit among nationals there that they've been sharing the gospel with. And as those people have come to Christ out of Muslim backgrounds in this particular circumstance, uh, they've 
been growing Christ, become leaders in the church, church has been planted. Well, three of those leaders from church who had come to Christ, become leaders in the church, were traveling. They were attacked by a group of militant Muslims, and the uh, one primary leader was stabbed to death. And they caught the guy who, who stabbed him, put him in prison. And the wife of that brother who was stabbed to death went to that prison and publicly confronted that man who had killed her husband. She shared the gospel with him. And as a result, several of the prisoners around him have now come to faith in Christ, including, and in addition to, three of the policemen who were working on the case. Let's not be so foolish as to think that we're going to reach unreached peoples without a cost, but let's also not be so foolish as to realize to live is Christ, to die is gain, and cost ultimately leads to reward in the kingdom. So we're going to sit back in fear of the world. We're going to step forward with faith in the world. I guess ultimately, are we going to waste our lives in routine religion, or are we going to spend our lives in radical devotion? That is the question I put before every single follower of Christ in this room. Are we going to take God at His word? Now, I know that some people say, well, wait a second. The gospel of the kingdom proclaims the testimony to all nations, then the end will come. So are you saying uh, that, uh, well, there's 6,000 plus unreached people groups, and so we got to get to all them before Jesus comes back, so that means Jesus is not coming back tomorrow? That's not at all what I'm saying. I hope Jesus comes back tomorrow. I'd prefer tonight. Uh, I pray continually for him to come back. We don't, we don't know if we got people groups to find right. We don't know if we got reach to find right. Doing the best we can with what we've got, but I can't improve at this point in the words of George Ladd. He called Matthew 24, 14, that promise that the gospel will go to all the nations. And then will come. He said it's the single most important verse in the Word of God for the people of God today. If we would just take him at his word. And he writes, God alone knows the definition of terms. I cannot precisely define who all the nations are, but I do not need to know. I know only one thing. Christ has not yet returned, therefore the task is not yet done. When it is done, Christ will come. Our responsibility is not to insist on defining the terms. Our responsibility is to complete the task. So long as Christ does not return, our work is undone. Let us get busy and complete our mission. Indeed, let's believe the goodness of God. Let's trust in the greatness of our God. Let's obey the command of God. And let's experience the blessing of God. Wouldn't you like to be a part of the generation that sees the people groups of the world reach with the gospel and Christ return for the praise he's due? Let's pray, God, pray, pray, oh God, that you would help us to learn from what you have given us here in your word. 
God, I pray that you would raise up students, men and women across this room who, including myself, God, who believe your goodness and who will trust your greatness, who will obey your word and experience your blessing. We pray that you would bless and lead and guide every facet of this conference to nurture that kind of faith in each of our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.